Hi, this is Lisa Tamati, bringing you Pushing the Limits, the show that gets deep into the psyche of limit pushers across all genres. Out-of-the-box thinkers, cutting-edge researchers, leaders, athletes, academics, entrepreneurs and social change innovators and more. Cutting to the chase to unlock the secrets of their success, their achievements, their philosophies and motivation. Join me in my quest to find out what makes the movers and shakers of our world tick and what gems of wisdom we can take from their experiences. Brought to you by runninghotcoaching.com, the platform that helps you achieve your health and fitness goals. Well, welcome everybody to the show, Pushing the Limits, the show where we get deep into the psyche of limit pushes across all genres, and today we have a very, very special guest, someone that I'm very proud to have on my show, and that is the amazing Mark Ingalls. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. Great to have you on here. Now, Mark, I've uh, got a list of all your achievements here. I don't know whether I should introduce you uh, and say everything that you've done, but we might be here for an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that would say you're asking me embarrassing questions, so that might work. It might indeed. Well, Mark Ingalls, as most New Zealanders know, is um, quite an incredible person, a mountaineer extraordinaire um, who lost his uh, lower legs in uh, 1982, um, but has since gone on to climb Cho Yu, which is a 8,000er in the Himalayas. He's also climbed Mount Everest. He's also what perhaps not everybody knows, um, a silver medalist at the, from the Paralympics in 2000 in cycling in the one kilometre time trial. But outside of that, Mark is also uh, the founder of Limbs for All, which is a charitable trust that he has initiated and is a businessman, winemaker, motivational speaker, researcher, and all-around overachiever. <laughs> Does that sort of sum it up in a nutshell there, Mark? Well, I, you probably sum it up best by just saying I get bored easily. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I should have stuck at one of those things, probably. Heck no. Goodness no. The world would be a, wouldn't be such a good place if you just suck at one thing. Now, Mark... In the show, we want to sort of talk to you about what makes you tick, what your your philosophies on life is, what you've learnt um, through doing everything that you have, um, and just share with our listeners a little bit what makes someone like you tick. How do they tap into some of the the, the lessons that you've learned, some of the wisdom that you have? Um, so, Mark, let me let me start by. Taking everyone right back to 1982 when you were with your climbing partner, Philip Dahl, on Mount Cook for 13 days, stuck in a snow cave. Can you talk me through that experience a little bit? Oh, it was a pretty unique time, really. Um, the, unique in the fact that Phil and I were both search and rescue mountaineers. And in fact, I was um, one of the two team leaders that year. And so um, for us to get stuck um, was a combination of um, a bit of bad luck and <clears throat> perhaps um, a wee bit of overconfidence, mm -hmm. as they say, but yep. that's what every climber has. And, but it ended up being unique because we had the skills and the knowledge, really, and also the faith in our, the whole system, our, our search and rescue system, to, to ensure that we did the right things to survive, to ensure that we didn't panic. 
Yep. And I guess the, the big lesson that came out of 1982 out of Middle Peak Hotel is that, you know, with the right knowledge and with the right faith to make the right decisions, then, you know, um, you can get through some amazing things. I think a lot of the odds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it really was pretty much against the odds to, to survive for 13 days in those sort of conditions. Well, pretty much the longest anyone has is around about nine days. So, um, you know, we, we we didn't have much left in the tank, though, at the end. It's, um, we thought we had probably between 12 and 18 hours left of life. Oh. And Dick Price, a very experienced um, mountain surgeon who was uh, um, down the bottom, he he reckoned we had probably 12 hours left of, uh, of life. But wow. obviously we were a bit more overconfident. Which you need to be in a situation like that. How did you keep a, a, a hold on your emotions during that whole time and not to just panic and freak out? And I know part of it's training, being a mountaineer, being very experienced, but when you're getting close to death and your mate's getting close to death, it must be very hard not to, to lose the plot, so to speak. Yeah, it is. And I, I lost the plot and then sort of a, um, sort of in some ways in that I got quite delirious due to a chest infection. On the second to last day, and I was pretty keen to walk out of there in my bare frostbitten feet. Um, but uh, needless to say, that was impossible. And you know, a clip around the ear from Phil um, uh, helped that along. And uh, a lot of it was the fact that we were both in there. We were both strong personalities, even though quite different. But we were both um, analytical, and our isolation really meant that you could put down a lot of the elements of um, of feeling guilty for being stuck there, worrying about your family mm. and all those things. You get to a stage where you put all those to one side and your job is to survive. Yep. You know, it's um and that's your job and and that really was our total focus. And that must have been the only reason that you did manage to get out alive. What was the rescue effort like? Like it must have been a horrendously big rescue situation for for the mountain rescuers back then. What sort of um, logistics were involved in getting you guys off there? Well, I mean, it was huge, but we didn't know anything about it until we're driving from Mount Cook to Christchurch Hospital and we got the ambulance to stop at... Um, uh, fairly on the way through and brought a copy of the uh, Christchurch Star and <laughs> that had a picture of our snow cave on the front of the page and we're going, whoa, you know, wish we were in a snow cave that nice, you know. <laughs> and, you and actually so- stopped off on the way to the hospital <laughs> despite <laughs> nearly being dead and your legs needing to be amputated, etc. Did you know at that point that you were going to lose your legs? No, but we definitely knew we'd lose toes. You know, yeah. it's, um, I was paramedic by training. For me, it was like your very own Discovery Channel um, program about frostbite playing <laughs> at the end of your feet. You know, you go, ah, they do go white and waxy, you know. <laughs> well, it's like, um, and it was just like all your training had come true, you know. And it's, um, oh, and we stopped off at my mum's in Geraldine because mum was worried that we'd be a bit peckish and she had scones <laughs> with jam and cream. They had the back doors of the ambulance open and we were sipping tea, you know. That's, you could do that in 1982. That's a fantastic story. I love that. Your mum must have been beside herself, though, in reality. She must have been just oh, yeah, so glad I, to have you alive. 
Yeah, but you know, she'd she'd had a son who'd been a mountaineer since the age of twelve, so um, <laughs> was getting pretty used to it by the time she I got to twenty three. <laughs> Mum's marvellous, so when you go and do these crazy things, I know I put my mum through a few of those moments too. Not quite that drastic, I don't think, but um, yeah. The, and tell us a little bit about your 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 mum and your upbringing. Your your you know, so you you were a mountaineer since the age of twelve. You were obviously born to do this sort of stuff. Tell us how you got into it. And no, it's sort of like the opposite, really. I wasn't born to be a rugby player. Um, <laughs> that, that was the dream, was it? Oh no, not even that. Not after my first game of rugby. I was a skinny <laughs> little piece of white bait, you know. <laughs> I'd been a sickly kid, and and I was just a little beanpole, and well, not even tall enough to be a beanpole. <laughs> and so um, I was privileged to have a teacher who was a mountaineer and he got a small group of us who were never going to make the rugby field and took us out, you know, I grew up in South Canterbury and out on Four Peaks on Little Mount Peel and, you know, you instantly um, connect with the, the mountains. And so we weren't allowed to call ourselves an alpine club until we got to um, the age of 15. <laughs> and by the time I was 16, I got within about um, through 100 metres from the summit of, of Cook, uh, from Araraki. Wow. Uh, climate when I was 17. Jeez. And so for me, it was, uh, yeah, that was my, my rugby field, my cricket pitch, really. So, yeah, you, you weren't ever going to make it as a rugby player, so you did something else. You've got to find your strengths in life, don't you? Oh, you've got to find a safer sport. You don't want to go get around getting beaten up continuously. Not so sure about the safety of that one, but I do, I do understand the, the attraction of, of mountains and, and, you know, being outside and stuff. Was your, were your parents sort of instrumental in that, or was it something you just got into? In the- I was something that I needed to get into. My mum and dad had worked so hard. Dad had been a shearer. Yep. And which is a, like a grader driver, and Mum worked um, pretty much right through the whole of um, of of our life, and um, as a uh, shop assistant and haberdashery and menswear and things. Mm. And so um, I would cook tea every night, so you know, got an abiding love of, of food even to this day. Um, <laughs> That's a good thing. Uh, gave great skills, uh, great skills, and great skills in looking after yourself. But it gave you a great insight into the reason mum and dad worked so hard was to give my brother and sister and I, I guess, the, the opportunities. I, I still remember going on a tramping trip to Arthur's Pass and everyone else had oilskin coats, which was back in our day was the Gore-Tex of, um, uh, of the day. Sure. And, and I just had this little flimsy um, nylon uh, windbreaker thing. And I... They presented me with this um, oilskin um, uh, hunting jacket, my outdoor jacket, climbing jacket uh, before I went. And I knew then exactly how much that cost my family. That cost wow. them, that was huge. And I, I guess for that, I've always been um, incredibly humbled and appreciative, really. Yeah. So was it a really sort of good Kiwi upbringing, always in the outdoors, sort of full support from your parents by the sounds of it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep, mum and dad were never into sport um, at all, wow. but, um, but that's you know the great vehicle of, of mountaineering and and having a mentor like Bert, my teacher, and uh, they gave the support that was needed. Yep, it's um, 
I turned the chook house out um, in the backyard of our section into a mountain hut, you know. Uh, it took me a while to clean all the chook poo out, but got it all out. <laughs> It sounds brilliant. Now, when you uh, you know you grew up and you're an adult, you did you did a degree in human biochemistry. When was that? Was that because you said you're a para- paramedic as well? Yeah, that um, the 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 degree came after me losing my leg. So when I was at Mount Cook um, as a search and rescue mountaineer, we used to get sent to Burnham Army Camp and to do our paramedic training. And so right. we had very very good paramedic training. Um, and we were using it all day, every day at Mount Cook, and, and you know, and almost war zone situations, really. Yeah. And so we we were very, very experienced, and that always um, it always niggled at me that I'd never um, that I'd gone climbing instead of going to university, and you know, I'd always sort of had that thing about um, perhaps being a doctor in the back of my mind. Mm. Um, and so I always had that love of, of learning, of physiology, of understanding the body, and, and that's helped me hugely um, in my cycling and in my climbing and, and everything else. Yeah, and so I went back to university as an adult student, uh, Anne and I. Um, I had no legs, uh, and so there wasn't much of a career for a double amputee mountaineer back in 1985 when I went away. I reckon I could make one now, though. I reckon uh, you bloody well could, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> back then, uh, you couldn't convince anyone of that concept. So uh, I went away to Lincoln University and uh, and did a degree and was lucky enough to discover science, discover physiology and biochemistry, and, uh, and, and turned that into a career. So what age were you then? You were, like, when you went back to uni? Uh 25. 25, you're still a young fella. And your wife, Anne, was with you too? She was studying as well? Um, yeah, no, she was with us. She was um, uh, at home. and um, But Anne um, has always had a career in, like, an administration and, and teaching um, yep. administration. So she worked um, at, you know, the... The CR, you know, the um, the DSIRs or the um, I forget which one she was working for, MAF or yep. for someone at Lincoln, and to help supplement. Um, and I'd work barman at nights um, when I was at Lincoln, wow. and uh, and we sort of um, managed to scrape up some money for a section and built a house on it and and sold that and that funded um, really the four years at university. Fantastic. So, has Anne been a really pivotal part of your life? Like, is she like how did she cope with you coming back with no legs and um, you know oh, the risks like, that you take? Yeah, it's been always far harder for her than it ever has been for me. Because, yeah. You know, um, yeah. We we come from quite different um, backgrounds, so the the concept of um, of of the situations I've put myself in as a mountaineer. Um, Anne's always found quite difficult. Mm. Uh, needless to say, there won't be another Everest in the future um, unless there's a divorce involved. Um, <laughs> I can uh, I can understand that. <laughs> but she but she let you live your dreams. You know, well, a lot of that's, that's people exactly wouldn't. Right. That's you you nailed it in one. And so she she once described it as it's um it's better to have a husband that's missing the odd toe, foot, um, or finger than have a grumpy Mark at home. <laughs> she sounds like quite an incredible lady. Oh, she is, yeah. <laughs> and you've got you've got a three kids as well. Yeah, three kids: um, Lucy, Jeremy, and Amanda, all grown up and uh, and leading their own lives in various places in the world now. Yeah. Have any of them gone into mountaineering or anything? 
No, they sort of grew up in uh, in, in the eras when I was doing different things. Um, Lucy was growing up when I was at university, and and so she sort of uh, went down that line and has a double degree in law and psychology, and and wow. uh, works um, at HR in in USA at the moment. Uh, Jerry's um, well, one could suggest he's a bit like me and he's never grown up, um, but. He is um, a pro elite um, mountain biker and road cyclist. Just finished the tour of Southland. Wow, that's um, cool. Just, and he's just become a dad in the last five months as well. So, um, which is pretty cool. Oh, so you're it's, a grandfather uh, now? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not <laughs> sure that word yet, but that's good. Um, uh, and so Jerry grew up um, when I was doing all of my cycling um, through the late '90s and early 2000s. So he got some really nice hand-me-down bikes. And that for him was a, a real saving grace as well because he wasn't so crash hot at school. He's, he's got a bit of the um, um, uh, um, the, the lack of um, attention um, <laughs> that I've got. So you know he was finding school pretty tough, but he the bike was perfect and and the culture of uh, of cycling and it's exactly the same in, in what you do and the runners and having the um, the, the senior people mentoring the young people and yep. you know it always comes better from someone else than from your parents and and he's really absolutely blossomed he's a brand manager for a cycle import company and wow. uh, um, and still riding um, phenomenally well so and Amanda the my youngest is doing her PhD in biochemistry crikey you've you've um, got a brood of overachievers but like yep. you guys yeah that's no, fantastic <laughs> <laughs> How do? Why do you think that is, though, Mark? Why do you think you and your wife and your family have all like achieved such incredible things? I mean, I mean, your your bio reads like you know, like ten people's bio. How did you fit all that into one life? And what drives you to pursue such impossible goals? Um, well, I wouldn't recommend it for everyone uh, because it does take a wee bit of a toll, um, and if you're if you're not set up for it, it can uh, it can probably pretty much destroy you pretty quick. For for me, I, I love to learn, I and I love to interpret the things um, um, that I'm passionate about. You know, and that's probably one of the most overused words around. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the uh, mountaineering. You understand it because you put your life on your line. Um, you know, when you're really passionate about these sorts of things, so it's it's a place where you can use that word. But for I think for my kids, it's the under. They've seen me grow up. Okay, they they they've seen me grow up in that um, I was a young mountaineer who got a new challenge put in front of him. Mm. And if you're going to have your legs cut off when you're 23, then the best person is a young mountaineer because. You know, you, you've been into challenge your whole life and you've been putting your life on the line. By the time you get to 23 and you realise life's about to change, it's just a new challenge. And that's the way you've you've approached it. So you, a lot of people would 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 face a challenge like that and and give up and go, well, that's me done. Um, I'll take up a desk job somewhere. Um, but you you didn't go that route. How, how come? Why? Yes. Yeah, see, that's the really tough bit. Because I don't. I mean, how can you think like that? You know, perhaps if you were already on the couch, but then you wouldn't lose your legs anyway. So no. that's. Um, you know, so it's when you get off the couch that you run the risk. But if you've got the the essence, the the life force in you to get off the couch anyway, 
then having your legs chopped off is just having a couple of limbs chopped off. It's not having your soul, your intellect, um, or anything else removed. All it does is just open a new door for a whole new set of um, of opportunities. Really, you know, some of them are challenges, and some are just plain opportunities. And um, I, I guess I've always been that um, that my family always accused me of uh, playing around in the lab too much and making myself an extra um, uh, gene for overconfidence. You know, <laughs> it never knocked you. It didn't blow that, you to pieces and make yeah, you want to you know hide in a corner somewhere. Yeah, I mean. Um, just saying to Anne the other day, I said, you know, I need another Everest, you know, I need something like that. And she goes, well, you need to think pretty carefully about that because they haven't always worked out that crash hot for you, you know. Um, There's not, not much more you can lose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to lose any more. So, um, and so I'm always on the lookout for that. Um, but the, the, the tough thing, really, um, and that's for most of us out there in the normal world, which I consider myself in, yep. is actually funding them. Um, yeah, you know, tell me well, about it. Yeah, it's, um, people have an expectation that, that the funds just flow in, but it's oh. extremely hard you know, just to, to make a living at doing this sort of thing if you live in New Zealand. Mm. Perhaps if we lived in the USA or somewhere else, um, it might be different, but here in New Zealand, um, you know, it's heartwarming it's, to hear actually, because yeah, I've really, yeah. really struggled. You, people always ask me, "Well, what's next? What's next?" And you're thinking, oh, "Crikey, do you know how much it takes, yeah. effort-wise, getting sponsors and getting film crews and getting things organised for one expedition or one race? Um, it does take a massive toll on your personal finances, your business, your family, um, and that's all when it goes to plan, when it goes to custard." Um, you know, it's it's a different different story again. Yeah, and I guess one of the hardest things for my family um, and for Anne and, and I is that you lose a bit of faith in, in some at some level in human nature. Because mm. there are plenty of people that will say yes, 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 but when it comes to doing the hard yards to actually stepping up, all of a sudden there's a no, um, and it's much easier if people just fronted up and said no right from the start oh yeah tell me about that's so true instead of you know tagging you along for for months and months you're putting more work into chasing something because it's an open possibility and then they tell you no um yeah that it does make it difficult and these things like everest and and himalayan expeditions they cost horrendous amounts of money so so yeah that that you know, for someone though with your background, with your history, with your your achievements and your your academic side as well, surely it would be a lot easier than it is for someone like me. Um, uh, I think it just takes as much, and it also depends. You know, I'm not a particularly good networker, so um, you know, living here in Hamner, it does make life a, a bit more difficult. So that's I've never true. been yeah. the, um, the the schmoozing type person, so that was. Um, <laughs> Puts you at a bit of a, um, a bit of a disadvantage, uh, and there's a lot of mountaineers that are like that. Actually, they they're more focused on the mountains than on than on anything else. And so, you know, I've had to learn to do those things. Um, yeah. You know, I wrote, um, I think it was something like about 76 letters uh, for sponsorship to major corporations and the like for Everest, and only three uh, returned a reply. <laughs> You know, and it's just like, wow, come on, guys. You know, it's um, time to step up. And, and the, you get other sports where it's just shoved in their back pockets, left, right, and centre, which is extremely frustrating, isn't it? 
Yes, I've, I've heard your frustration on the um, <laughs> interviewed occasionally, and uh, it's like, yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from, sister. <laughs> it's not very popular when you do that, but um, it is it is frustrating. But um, because people that are pushing the limits, just like the title of this show, are pioneering ways for others to follow, and there is a huge value to society in and people who will go that extra distance, who are role models, who who are pushing the limits of what humans can do. And I think, you know, it would be great if that was valued. But at the end of the day, I suppose corporates just want bums on seats, money in the in the account. If they can't quantify it immediately, then they don't want to be involved. I can I mean I can totally understand. I've worked with a lot of corporates, um, you know, I've been embedded in one as, uh, as a senior wine maker at Montana. Um, I created uh, Peak Fuel, the sports food brand, mm. which we sold about five or six years ago. And so I have a very, very good understanding of sponsorship, and I can, I can, I can see where, in many cases, I just don't fit in. And so it's like, get over that and go and find some other avenues. And I think that's one of the biggest things, is um, one of the things that you... you, you you come out with is you just need to look for the opportunity. It's, um, I don't know, I saw on Facebook, uh, um, must have been a year or more ago, and I use it all the time. And it's that story about the um, uh, about the optimist, the pessimist, uh, and they, they, were, they were just sitting there, um, looking at the glass of wine, you know, and is it half full or is it half empty? Yeah, well, actually, one guy just whipped straight in, drank the thing, and he was the opportunist. <laughs> And that's what we need to be, you know. We need to be, you need to always be looking for the opportunity, and and that can be really hard to do. It takes a lot of, um, and especially if you have people around you who who don't necessarily see it that way, um, or who aren't as confident, um, or have a different way of looking at things. But you have to find the opportunity out there, and there is an opportunity in absolutely everything, you know. And so it's finding it and then maximizing it. Um, the the disadvantages and the things that will hold you back are always going to be there, but the less attention you pay at them and the more attention you pay at, um, at stepping up and getting over them and getting around them, then that that's, the I think, for, for any of us. I think, yeah, like uh, one of the things that I lecture on when I'm doing talks is like obstacles are always going to come in your way and it's what type of person you are, whether you're one that will dig underneath it, go around it, find a way over it, even if it takes you a couple of years, or are you someone just blames and excuses and I can't get around it and and denies it being your responsibility. And I think that that baseline of attitude of – of seeking out opportunities, of networking, of finding possibilities in every, you know, cloud that comes your way, is the only way to to move forward. Yeah, and I mean, in many cases, there are things that you just can't do anything about. You know, there are um, there are road rules. There are um, there are there are lots of uh, things that you just have to work within, and then um, and then then find the outlet somewhere else. There's Lots of instances, and I've been through a lot of it, both in my personal life and my corporate life, where change is overlaid, um, you know, on top of you. It's just dumped down on top of you, and you hear so many people moaning and carrying on about the change that's happening, when the thing that really defines you as a person is how you react to that change, how you take ownership of that change, and and use it to your benefit. 
and that's the that's why you know and a lot of corporates that I work with change real culture change can take four five six years um, because it takes that long to get these people to get their head around it if they mm. can get their head around that even sooner then things can can change um, nearly always for the better um, but the big thing is just not to be um, obsessed about something but to always keep you know that peripheral vision going to make sure you're going in the right direction so flexibility is in the face of adversity really or in the face of massive change I mean society in the last 10 years has gone through uh, I mean we all know the techno you know technology revolution um, and it's hard to keep up it's hard to to like, every industry is changing and I think for people you know like yourselves and, and what I do too working with corporates to deal with change management and deal with um, embracing whatever's coming at you rather than sitting in the mud and going well I can't change it and I'm going to stay stuck in my ways I mean one of my businesses is uh, you know by trade I'm a jeweler I'm a goldsmith um, and that has been revolutionized in the last 10-12 years um, where when I did it, it was everything was handmade it was you know all the old traditions which I loved and now it's all CAD computer produced mass produced in China um, and the soul has gone with it and, and I have complained about that for a number of years and how hard it is to survive but now I've just decided well I'll just go in the direction that I want to be involved in and stop moaning about it and develop other interests because I don't want to go along that computer route um, or mass production in China out so I stick to my things but I, it's a waste of time complaining about it you know it's dealing with the, the situation as is becoming an artist becoming getting recognition as an artist and developing that side of it instead of lamenting what was once the case you know and I mean that's the thing that holds everyone back and you know, it's um, I have to constantly, constantly remind myself of that as well. And it's that, um, you know, it's it's, uh, it's not all a, um, a box of roses. You know, it's um, what was um, Forrest Gump. You know, life's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You know, it's um, and so it really is a box of chocolates. And and some days, um, you know, there's something a bit sour in there. And really, it's uh, it's having strategies to cope with those times and then maximize the good times but for a lot of people it's having the strategies and the skills and sometimes you know you, you've got to go and hit up a psychologist um, you've got to go and hit up someone that's um, that's got a lot more um, in-depth learning around it than, than you you know b back in 1982 we we had no counseling or, or anything um, you know we just got to settle legs and then it was just you know, go for it you know deal and, with and, it. Yeah. yeah deal with it and you know and we um um, we're, we're, we're both Phil and I were overachievers in so many different ways. Phil was trekking in the, in the Peruvian Andes, you know, within probably six months of getting a set of legs, and um, it was just things that oh, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And it was um, well, actually, it's just um, you know, you've been served up this. Uh, now it's the time to deal with it, and. I, I totally credit um, growing up a young mountaineer that gives you that, and that's been hugely beneficial in my business yeah. life. But a lot of the learnings that I've taken from industrial psychology, it's um, we work very closely 
with um, some uh, psychologists and, and the whole Montana journey of changing the culture of the company. Yep. And I, I learned so much from that that I can apply in my personal life. Wow. You know, um, you know, and every now and then I have to go back to it and have a read through and have an understanding and then find someone that I can share it with that understands as well. And probably for a 56-year-old New Zealand male, one of the hardest things you can do is actually find someone to share it with um, <laughs> and or ask for help. Yeah. But yeah, men don't do that, do they? No, they don't. No, they don't. No, and especially mountaineering men are even worse than uh, that a lot. But um, <laughs> Very much, oh, very tough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's that's the one thing I've had to learn, you know, and that's when you really find out who your friends are, yeah. um, real friends, okay, and um, and sometimes you have to go and um, you know find a professional friend, and and you know they're, they're the learnings that I've had to take over the last um, uh, over the last years, really. So there is a softer side to Mark Inglison. I mean, what we see on paper and what you've done in 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 your life. Um, you look like you're, you're bulletproof, basically. You're, you're, you're a machine, Superman. Is there another side to Mark that's, you know, had to deal with some deep issues at all? I mean, I know in my life, um, again, you look on paper and you think, well, yeah, that's pretty, you know, hardcore. On the other side, um, I've had a lot of issues around depression, um, uh, you know, nervous breakdown, um, you know, you name it, I've been there pretty much. <laughs> and that is not an anomaly for me. It's part of, of, of your personality. Do you have, have you had issues along those lines? Well, I think it's part of everyone that, um, that really strives to achieve at the level that, that you do, Lisa, that I strive to achieve at because it's not easy. And it also takes um, a lot of intensity of the personality to do that. And mm. That has its upsides and its downsides. It's, um, you know, my family came to me probably a year ago and said, "We think you're still dealing with um, with things." Um, I had a very rough time post Everest in 2006. Yep. Um, very very tough time, you know, and mm. um, I'm actually only just really starting to learn to deal with that now, and mm. I've had to go and get some help for that. And a lot of that was also that, um, you know. Some people consider it, you know, still dealing with um, 1982. I don't necessarily see that. You know, that for me is less of an issue. But it's, um, it's having strategies to to deal with, um, you know, simple things like how people think of you. Um, yes. Um, self-worth issues when you actually don't do as well as um, you'd like to do. Because to to to, to run those things that you run, um, and, you know, the loneliness of the running, the um, you know the the, the purity of, of the the intensity of spirit of what you do is and similar in the mountains and similar on the fight. Yep. It's, um, it, they take a toll, um, oh, but yeah. they take a lot of intensity and and um, and yeah, I've just woken up to the fact that I actually need a bit of help um, around some of that. And that's brilliant so, to to share that because you know there are you know a lot of uh, young men out there who come up against the problem and try and hit it with bricks instead of actually looking at some of the issues and that it's okay you know to and and when you are someone who strives in pursuit of excellence and you're that you're your hardest judge on your on yourself you know um, I mean after you know, my last few years I've really had some post traumatic stress come out of um, the things that I've done which sounds quite ridiculous really I didn't get shot at or or anything but 
the amount of pain and the amount of suffering that you go through um, does lead to some damage, you know, some psychological damage. And part of the thing that I've been going through recently is, you know, I'm 47, I'm getting older, my body's not doing quite what it used to, um, and the passion for doing the long-distance running isn't there. And so my whole identity has just gone, well, who the hell am I then, you know? Um, am I losing it? Am I old? Am I, am, you know, and facing those types of issues, have you had, you know, issues around that or like post post um, Everest and all the dramas that went on there, that's been hard to deal with? Uh, yeah, it has. Not not the climb. Um, you know, that's that's my raison d'etre. You know, the, the mountains mm. are where I, it's, I feel most comfortable. And, and, and in fact, here at home in Hamner, um, I do the hermit thing occasionally and I just um, pack up um, the bivy bag or the tent and disappear up the back for a day just for a night um, just to to uh, reset the the head really it's um it's all the peripheral stuff that um was you know a, a, exactly as you explained it you know it's um you don't have to be shot at to get um um PTSD oh, so, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. or or the the experience what what that's like um the pain and the 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 focus and the intensity of the things that we do uh, it's and my wife has always said you know, it's um. She gives me a clip around the ear and said, "You made it look too easy." You know, it's, um, <laughs> you need to cry more often. You know, on TV preferably. You know, I'm it's, good at that. Uh, <laughs> I'm a girl. I get away with it. You see? Yeah, I know you get away with it. You know, it's, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm a I'm a shocker for doing that. You know, I, I do. You know, it's like um, yeah, I'm a, a reasonably brilliant. emotional person. So, and I appreciate emotion um, immensely. So, but also being that way means that you. You can perhaps um, take a lot of baggage along with you when if things don't work out, or you know that. I guess I'm, I must have a pretty high pain threshold because I'll do things that other people won't do, and I'm going, "What? You know, come on, you know." Uh, and on. people are going, "You've got to be mad." I'm going, "Well, no, this is normal, you know. It's like um, and so a bit of mad and normal's good." <laughs> We're mad in certain different ways, eh, than other people. I think it's madness to to do nothing with your life and just, you know, um, treat your body like it's carrying your brain around. Um, you know, this <laughs> we need. I mean, I need the physicalness of being out in nature, and for me, it's not extreme mountains, but it's just like you say. I need to get away. I find it really hard in today's society with the whole pressures, especially in the business that that we're in. With you know sponsorships and and uh, speaking and all the rest, you have to be engaged with the media, with uh, your profile, everything all the time. And sometimes I just want to run away and you know climb a mountain or go out bush and just turn off the grid, you know. <laughs> but you can't afford to for too long, you know. It's part of the, it's part of what you got to what to deal with. And uh, often I think. Doing the runs are the easy part. It's the preparation, the logistics, the selling yourself, the marketing yourself. That's the hard part, you know. Um, but I wouldn't change it for the world either, you know. It's living your life to the full and it's doing what you wanted to do. But I think one of the main messages that I've got out of this, this conversation is that it's okay to cry. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to to feel like you're not bulletproof, Um 
and even you know coming from one of the tough toughest men in New Zealand, if not the world, um, to acknowledge that I think is immensely powerful for other for other men and other people. Yeah, it is, but it's also the next step. It's um, um it's like standing on top of a mountain. You're only halfway. You know, you have to get down, and, mm. and getting down for me is the hardest thing. So. And, and any of these things, if you want to um, be honest with yourself, the biggest lesson I learned was to stand outside of myself, look back in, and see the Mark Ingalls that everyone else sees. And it's only by doing that you can understand people's compliments or, or their criticisms of you. Um, you might want to change, you may not want to change, but you have to be aware of that. And and that's the first step in um and understanding, well, where do I go from here? It is mm. great to escape out for a night up on um, Dumb Blaine, um, the mountain behind us. But um, the thing I always think of is uh, when I come back down, what benefit is that going to be to me? Because if I just go and do it without doing anything about it, then that for me, it's just like, well, that's just a bit like freewheeling, okay? Um, I've got to be able to take something positive out of that and use it to um, match up uh, um, and counterbalance part of the reason why I went and did it um, and to escape. And so it's it's building that up and sometimes that um, you need help to get the skills to do that. But it's, um, it's the understanding that, yeah, we need to have um, that, that, um, that ability to really expand our chest and breathe, um, you know, mm. um, you know, be it through mindfulness or, or meditation or do whatever you like, but then understand how does that help us in the hours and the days and the weeks afterwards and, and structure it in. And by doing that and by giving your life that much thought, then um, you'll find you can just do so much more as well. So taking a breather, taking a step back. Um, and I, one of the things that I fight with constantly, um, because I'm always wanting to be better, pursue excellence in everything that I'm doing, is the guilt. You know, you take time out to lie in bed and read a book or something, and, and the guilt, the guilt, the guilt keeps constantly gnawing at you. You could be studying, you could be writing this book, you could be doing this, whatever. There's always a hundred million things to do. You think it's okay to take time out when you're. You know, you need to balance. It's absolutely essential to take time out, you know. And our training schedules on uh, running and and for cycling, you know, you you build in the ability to the body to recover, you know, be it one day a week. um, You know, you structure your training so, you know, the intensity might be at the start of the week and and the endurance at the end of the week and your life's exactly the same. You need to structure all that in. You can't be intense the whole time. You can't do just the endurance the whole time. And you need to have a break, but you also need to structure it. And you know, some of that comes from learning, um, from doing different things. Um, and so, you know, that's part of the challenge. And when you work um, sort of solo, like like I essentially yeah. do, then then that actually takes quite a bit. It's one of the big things I miss from the team at um, at Puno Ricard in, in Blenheim, you know, the old Montana. And I, I visited there last Monday and worked with the team, actually. Nearly the whole team of the same team that were there 12 years ago when I left was the, the you, you feel like you're nestled within this um, incredible infrastructure and, and that's allowing you to excel. And when you work by yourself, 
um, when you run solo, when you climb, um, when you when you ride your bike, um, a lot of that's um, stripped away, and so mm, you're um, everything. Yep, you're a one yep. man band. That's your one man band, and sometimes that doesn't work very well. So once again, it's that old adage: you actually do need to go and find someone to help if you can. Um, but the other thing is, is you can't be intense the whole time. You need to take the lessons from uh, training and sport and apply them to training of life, and mm. and mix it up. Um, and you know, the hardest thing I can do is sleep in. You know, I'm a shocker. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm good at doing that. Yeah, soccer, <laughs> you know, it's the yeah, you, know, you gotta, you know, the, the gotta shut all the light out. You know, and steal my um 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 my iPad or my watch or whatever from me, so I, I can't see what time it is, and that's the nearest thing you know I can do, other than head out into the back blocks and you you do the things you need to do to to be comfortable and survive, and there's nothing else apart from just sitting and thinking. Yes, and so that's that's my recovery. Do you have you found your attitude has changed as you've gotten older? I mean, I've when I was a little bit younger, I was intense all the time, rip shit and bust, you know, smash out one thing after the other, always thinking, well, there's someone tougher, harder. I've got to go longer. I've got to be more. I've got to, um, and then getting to a certain exhaustion point and going. For me, it was after you know running Death Valley a couple of times and then running through New Zealand just a few weeks later. Um, and a 24-hour in, in England as well, all within three months. And after running through New Zealand and the pressure that that put on my body and my mind, I was uh, I found it hard to get out of bed for... I was just completely blown. And up until that point, I've always thought I can head through the wall anything. I'm tough, I'm resilient, I you know. And then all of a sudden it was like, shoot, I, I actually have lost the passion to... To fight, um, you know, can't I can't find myself, and it took me a good two years. Even though I kept doing things, I was forcing. I lost the passion, um, and so the last couple of years, I've just taken a real step back and gone, "Hey, this is okay." You know, I've got to. And you, what what interests me with you, Mark, is that you started out as an as a mountaineer. But you haven't let that define who you are. You're not just a mountaineer. You're you're all these other things. You're your author, researcher, you know, winemaker, biochemist, charitable trust dude, speaker, whatever, um, cyclist. You you've had one career after the other. You haven't been defined by one thing and stayed stuck in that. No, but probably to my detriment um, or to my family's detriment. Really, it's uh, it would have been easier to have been just one or two things um, um, to, to be blunt New Zealand doesn't cope very well with people that are, um, do lots and lots of different things so it's a lot easier for people to understand a person that just does one thing really really well put you um, in the box yeah. and so yeah put you in the box you know and I'm not uh, I get claustrophobic so I'm never going to be in a box so um, yeah and so that's, that's always been a bit of a challenge you know I work a lot in India these days you know it's, um, I'm off there on Thursday for um, about um, 20 or 19 days or so uh, very intense um, programs that I'll run uh, right through India and and they get it um, which is really quite refreshing that wow. they, get, they get the fact that um, you do more than one thing and they want to take pieces of the different things that you do uh, for different parts of what they do and, and it's quite refreshing actually yeah. it's, um, 
you know it's the um it's, it's very challenging working there it's um quite confronting at times but you know i've been there probably i don't know um 30 times in the last four years perhaps 25 times in the last four years and it's um uh you know i'll, I'll go i'll I'm chomping at the bit to get on the plane on Thursday and, and head back because it's uh, it is challenging, but it's also um, uh, uh, you get a great sense of achievement out of out of it as well. And so you're working with corporates over there, running workshops, running seminars. Yeah, working with corporates with um, all sorts with IT industry, um, finance, financial services, infrastructure. Um, I was working at a steelworks in the centre of the Karnataka, right in the centre of India, a while ago. And then on the last trip, I was working with, um, you know, 100 top executives of Infosys, you know, a company that has 180,000 staff. Um, um, And so you're working at all different levels um, with all sorts of different people. And there's just an uh, an incredible um, thirst and uh, for knowledge and aspirational nature that. I, I believe New Zealand's missed the boat and, and its um, its total focus on on exports to China. When I mean, it's, um, India is a, an equal sized uh, market and will soon be a bigger market. You know, it's, it's tough, but it's um, it, it's you know, it's that sense of achievement once again. You know, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, that sounds like another Everest in itself. You know, but how did you get into you know India just because of you know. Um, being involved with lots of things in Himalayas and, and that sort of thing, or was it uh, partly, um, partly one of the banks in India had been using my story for um, for many years without me knowing it actually. Wow! And and, um, and they were used. They'd, they'd made a whole video about me. Um, and, you know, you using it with their eighty thousand staff. You know, and it was just like oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that was sort of part of the door opening, but most of the door opening was with. Um, uh, uh, with Raga uh, De Silva and Nicola Fenton. Raga and Nicola were based in Wellington for about ten years, and must have been about six years or seven years ago they moved back to India, um, where Raga's originally from, and have a wee company called um, Global Village and one called Red Hot Merchy. And what they do is they help um, New Zealand companies um, understand India. Okay, mm-hmm. they don't sort of help with the nuts and bolts of entering the market, but they help them understand and. And we we talked together for about a year, um, and then we we run a joint venture now. And purely because I'm uh, I'm just a soft Kiwi, I can't negotiate with um with some of my Indian clients. You know, it's like <laughs> I haven't got a show. You know, and that's so Raga does the negotiations, and uh, Nicola does the organising, and um and I'm at the pointy end. Yeah. Fantastic to 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 be involved with something like that. That'll be quite. quite oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. They're my other family. Um, you know, my family here in New Zealand get jealous of them occasionally. <laughs> get more time so, with you, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's um, and it's been a, a lot of fun. It's uh, it's challenging, and uh, it's um, you get to meet so many new interesting people, which is the reason why I do it. It saves yeah, me. You're across all industries. I mean, that's what I find interesting with speaking, even you know, and the metaphors from you know our sports that you bring across to the boardroom. Um, but you're working in a whole lot of different industries and in a different culture. That must be just you learn so much, don't you, when you're going into, you know, different different fields of interest every week. Oh, you do. Yeah, I mean, I take as much out of every talk I do as as what I give, and mm. um, and 
hopefully um, all my clients out there, if they could close their ears for a minute, but effectively all the clients want exactly the same thing. They just phrase it in a different way or have a different branding Absolutely. or a different um, um, uh, industry around it, and that's around attitude and change in business, and it's those things because many businesses are superb at giving their, um, um, their, their employees, their assets, the, the tools that they need to do what they do, but the, the tools are of no use whatsoever unless you've got the actual attitude and, and the, the, the thirst and the desire to want to use them. And so that's, I guess, the role that you play and the role that I play in the businesses. Yep. And, and I'm just lucky that English is the language of, um, of business in India. So mm. I've spoken to everyone in New Zealand about five or six times, I'm sure, uh, but there's 1.2 billion people in India, so I've got a, I've got a, a wee hell of a market. Yeah, wee way to go. <laughs> that's absolutely fantastic and and you know do you find that you actually get more recognition overseas than you do in New Zealand oh that's just the nature of New Zealand really you know it's, <laughs> it's uh, funny um, there eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just the nature of New Zealand it's uh, um, and and I can totally understand it and I'm sure I'm the same with um, some of our other sports stars and the likes as well but yeah when you step over into a culture like that and you um you actually have to make sure you take 12 hours in Singapore on the way home to let your brain um, sink back into um, Kiwi mode. Otherwise, you'll get a slap around the ear when you get home. <laughs> so different, eh? But we are such, yeah, we're such a small population for starters, and we do have certain ways of doing things. And I do sometimes think you're never going to get recognition at home. Um, uh, even, like... I've got a bit of the same problem, you know, uh, as you. Um, I do a lot of different businesses from jewellery to PR to you know speaking to books to producing documentaries and it doesn't compute you know like uh, I was pitching a book last week to my publishers and they go well you know and as an extreme athlete that's one very small slice of the market people aren't really interested in that you know and I go, oh, for crying out loud, there's so much more. <laughs> there's so much more stories and, and things that you've got to tell and um, different areas that you could be used in. But trying to get out of that very narrow focus is really, really, really tough. Um, well, of the five books I've written, um, um, four have been a, um, a financial and, and, and you know, a success and that they've got on, um, on the short lists and... Uh, finalist into book of the year and things like that and the only one that hasn't really was the uh, multi-dimensional one about um, Mark as the um, as the, the, the life everything coach and, and uh, lessons for life it was called Off the Front Foot oh and, bugger and don't tell tanked. my publishers it, that it tanked <laughs> <laughs> keep quiet shh Mark don't tell me that <laughs> right. it's well gone now yeah it's well gone so they only want to know about the extreme, and the, they don't want to know that what you've learned from it. No, they only want to know um, the thing that it's exactly the same. When you say someone's name, automatically something will be linked to it. And with me, it's mountaineering generally. Yeah. Um, and so um, outside of that, it's uh, it's, it's a hard sell. Yeah. Shh. We'll keep that quiet between ourselves. <laughs> Well, Mark, we're coming to the end of our hour. It was far too short. Um, I mean, I, I could chew the fat with you, I think, for, for many, many hours and learn a lot from you because you're sort of one of my super role models. Um, 
I don't think I'll ever reach the dizzy heights you have, literally or, or uh, metaphorically. But um, that was Mark Ingalls on the show today, an incredible New Zealander. Mark, have you got any last words of wisdom for people out there who just want to suck you dry, get some, get some good tips out of you? No, not really. It's just, um, I mean, the important thing is, um, is um, always keep looking. You know, always, uh, always keep the head up. Always look forward. The only reason you should ever look back is to see how far you've come, and um, and and so it's to keep the eyes to the front and keep going. You know, it's it's like living your life sitting on the on the top of a rifle barrel, and so you can exactly see where you're pointed, but you can also see everything on both sides of you as well. And that's the uh, that's the whole uh, concept of I believe passion in life, and so go find yourself a passion and um, and go for it. And take every opportunity. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I wish you all the very best, your success in um, India and all your other projects. Um, thank you very, very much for sharing so much and so honestly and openly with us today. Um, and yeah, I hope we can keep in touch and. Um, you can share some more gems of wisdom with us along the way. Thanks, Lisa. You've been listening to Pushing the Limits, brought to you by Running Hot Coaching, your online health and fitness coaching platform. For more information, visit us at www.runninghotcoaching.com.